This week, we've got a real treat for you. For our eighth Gory Details, we're bringing in writer and director Harrison Smith, whom some of you may know from the recently released Death House. So buckle up, boyos. It's time to explore the truth behind the five evils. Listen to them, children of the night. What music they make. Welcome to another edition of the Gory Details, our podcast special where we talk to horror figures from all walks of life. This time, we're excited to explore the depths of depravity with horror writer and director Harrison Smith. He's been a part of a number of films, including Camp Dread and Six Degrees from Hell, but his most recent one is a little flick called Death House, which features one of the most star-studded horror casts I think I've ever seen. Fair warning, this cast will be chocked full of spoilers. As I try to get answers to some of the lingering questions I have about the film and as we discuss some of the intricacies of what it took to get it finished. So, if you haven't seen it, pause and come back. You can find this on Blu-ray and VOD, and as always, we'll be sure to link exactly where we found it in our podcast description. Harrison, thanks for being on the cast. It's awesome to have you on here. Uh, how are you today? Doing well, thanks. Just got off the set of uh, The Special. It's a horror film I'm shooting right now. Oh, is there anything that you can tell us about it? or? Sure, I can tell you a lot. What would you like to know? Uh, well, why don't you start off with a synopsis? I haven't heard about this one at all. <laughs> well, it's um, it's a screenplay that was sent to me by uh, screenwriters uh, James Newman and Mark Seensland. And uh, it kind of caught my attention because it had a real kind of creep show feel to it. Okay. So uh, I read the script, uh, you know, talked back and forth, uh, got uh, some financing together. And we got um, Damian Mafai from uh, the Strangers film. Okay. And um, we, I brought back some of my people that I've used for Camp Dread, uh, Davey Raffaele. Mm-hmm. Uh, I brought him back from Camp Dread and Zombie Killers and Six Degrees of Hell. And we have an up-and-comer horror name, uh, Sarah French, who is going to be in this. She plays uh, Davey's wife, Lisa, in the film. And basically, it's, it's a real horror story about addiction is really what it's about. Okay. And uh, the premise is, I mean, when you see the poster, I can send you guys over the artwork. It's also on my Twitter feed right now. You can see that. Uh, it's simply called The Special and uh, has a the poster work has a large black box with a hole in it and written in handwriting over the hole. It simply says, stick it in here. Okay. And it goes from there. <laughs> all right. All right. So would you say it's more about kind of like wrestling with addiction in itself or are you kind of putting a supernatural spin on it or? Well, you know, yes. The, the answer is yes. And, and what I mean by that, yeah. The, what I mean by that is um, you can make of it what you want for what is happening to this guy, whether it is supernatural or, or something else. What I liked about the script is that it didn't really give any specific answers. And I like that stuff. That doesn't seem to fly well uh, lately with, with modern audiences who seem to want an explanation for everything. Everybody wants an answer for something. It's interesting because I'm going to have a couple questions for you <laughs> in regards to Death House about some sure. some stuff down the road. But continue, please. Sure, no problem. And and that's why. So, um, yeah, the answer is yes. There There could be a supernatural bent to this for sure. Okay. And uh, we have some great practical makeup effects by uh, Soda Effects and Roy Kinnaram, 
who did uh, also my practical effects for Death House as well. Okay. So it's it's going to have uh, one hell of an ending. I can guarantee you that. And the shoot is going fantastic, and we're we're going into our fourth day on it, and I couldn't be more pleased. Awesome. Well, that's that's amazing to hear. Do you have any kind of ETA for when shooting's supposed to wrap? Yeah. Well, we'll wrap February eighth. Okay. And then uh, we'll have a cut ready. I, I think it'll be ready to go by May, early June. Oh, wow. So right around the corner. All right. So fans yep. have some awesome things on the horizon to expect. From Abs- absolutely. Oh, okay. Great, great. Uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get your start? And, uh, you know, how how kind of did you go from, from produ- production to, to writing to, to directing? Well, really, it goes back to when I was a kid. Uh, my uncle got me a, a silent Super 8 Kodak camera, and I used to make movies with that. And I used to put my brother in a dress and make him run around in it, make comedy skits <laughs> like Benny Hill. And then uh, I graduated from that to putting them on video. I had my own cable show, local cable show at 16. It was a, a comedy show hour kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, went from there. I ended up getting a, a PA job out at uh, Universal Studios on Murder, She Wrote when I was 18. Oh, wow. And, and Anthony Perkins got me that job, Norman Bates himself. Wow, so that's that, pretty awesome. Yeah, I, I lied my way, like Spielberg, I lied my way onto the uh, studio lot to get a job. And uh, Anthony Perkins hooked me up and got me a job out there. And it kind of went from there. I mean, you know, I got my first big break with The Fields in 2009. Uh, a local investor wanted to make a film. He wanted to make a scary film. And... And so I offered up The Fields, which was written as a suspense thriller, which is based on the true story of what happened to me as a boy growing up on my grandparents' farm back in 73. Right. So we went from there, uh, just kept rolling one film into another. I followed that up with Six Degrees of Hell, then Camp Dread, uh, Zombie Killers, then Death House. And then I did my first comedy with uh, Vivica Fox and Michael Madsen, uh, James Duval. Uh, that was uh, Garlic and Gunpowder. I had right. Felissa Rose in that, who played a 300 pound drug lord named ma and, um, <laughs> oh yeah you gotta see it you'll never recognize her you won't recognize her. i'm telling you she kills it in it she is funny as hell in that i can imagine honestly felissa rose has a lot of personality i really enjoy oh yeah and things no one will ever accuse felissa rose of not having enough personality that's i can imagine that's probably <laughs> true so you've worked with her a number of different times i mean yeah we well Death she's House. my she's my producing partner she's an associate producer uh, on the special as well. And um, we've worked together now as partners since basically Camp Dread. Wow, that's incredible. So I guess you guys yeah. have a pretty good relationship then. We do. She's she's the sister I never had. She truly is. <laughs> do you ever have those moments where you're just like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm working with Angelo right now? <laughs> well, yeah, it's funny. Um, we were just talking about that recently because when I was 15 years old, I took a girl to our local theater to see Sleepaway Camp. And when the movie was over, and of course we all know the shocking ending, uh, this girl seemed pretty rattled by it on the way out. She goes, what did you think of that? And I said, well, I don't know. I said, I thought it was a fun little horror film. Mm-hmm. And she looks at me and she goes, I don't know if I can date somebody who thinks that kind of movie is fun. And so we cut, we agreed right there and then that Man, maybe this isn't the best thing to keep seeing each other. Because like, what kind of a statement is that? Yeah. You know, yeah. You're judging me on that. But I did you know, say one day I want to work with her. And uh, I was being interviewed by Fangoria for six degrees of hell on set. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, what do you got coming up next? I said, well, I got this summer camp slasher movie, but I'd only make it if I could get Felissa Rose because of sleepaway camp. And the, the interviewer goes, well, I know Felissa Rose. 
And he said, uh, do you want her phone number? I'm like, no, but you <laughs> you could do a proper introduction so she doesn't think I'm some weirdo stalker. Yeah, sure. And uh, we, we hit it off. He set up a three-way conference call, mm-hmm. and uh, we hit it off right from there. And she came and did Camp Dread for me, and she did fantastic. I, I wanted her as the camp counselor, you know, as a nod toward Angela from Sleepaway Camp. So, yeah, it is really cool to be able to sit back and say that, you know, I'm I'm very close friends with Felissa Rose, who is Angela. That's that's an incredible story, a great introduction to, <laughs> to, to start things off. Thank I, you. Uh, I saw – in, in, in another interview that you did with, with without your head, uh, that you mentioned that you're a believer in the paranormal. Have you ever ex- experienced anything in your life that was kind of? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I am. Yes, and and I've I've experienced things. And I'm sure you know the atheists and uh, scientists will say, well, that's either in your head or whatever. Um, but I, I know what I've seen and I know what I've heard and I know what I've experienced. And one of the best stories that I can tell you uh, is when we were shooting our follow-up to six degrees of hell called 360 degrees of hell, which was a short mm-hmm. uh, virtual reality short for Samsung. And uh, so I brought back um, Susan Moses, who was in the original film. And I also brought in Amanda Wiss from a nightmare on Elm street. Okay. So uh, we shot this great VR piece. It was, it's about 12 minutes long. You can download it. It's for Android or it's for Apple. And it's also on YouTube 360. Okay. And it's a Samsung piece and they loved it. And But anyway, we shot it at the Hotel of Horror, which is in Sailorsburg, Pennsylvania. And in my opinion, one of the, the best, if not the best, on the East Coast haunted Halloween haunted establishments out there. Right. And it's run by two spectacular people, Dan and Marlo Ambrosio. They're, they're just really great people, and they run a top-notch show. But the house itself, the hotel itself, has been the center of some very weird things, and it's well over almost 200-year history. Mm-hmm. And um, what most people don't know is that the original building is entombed inside the actual building now. If you go up into the attic and look through a hole in the attic, you can see the roof of the original building. Oh, wow. And in the 1930s, when the stock market crashed at the end of the 20s, uh, a lot of stockbrokers, for some reason, came out to that hotel to kill themselves. There were over 12 suicides in that hotel during that time. It's interesting that they were all drawn to this one place. Yeah, it's like a beacon. And then there was a lime quarry nearby where a bunch of children, you know, they use them for labor, uh, were killed in, in horrible accidents. And uh, the bodies were left on the front of the hotel uh, for people to come, the parents to come and claim their dead children. Okay. So death has always surrounded the place. Well, anyway, uh, well, now when we shot Six Degrees of Hell there, I felt nothing paranormal. I experienced nothing paranormal inside the building. Right. Um, never. Uh, the crew will tell you that they experienced power outages, batteries suddenly drained, you know, the stuff of ghost hunters, that kind of stuff, right? Right, right. So anyway, um, when we got ready to shoot 360 Degrees of Hell, I agreed to meet the owner, uh, the owners, Dan and Marlo, down at the hotel, and, and they know me well, and really, I don't ever have to knock, but... The hotel is huge. It has over 100 rooms in it. And so when I get to the doorway, I I always yell in because they could be working anywhere inside the hotel. And I don't want them to think because they have had a problem with people just walking in kind Mm -hmm. of thing. So um, I stood in the doorway and I yelled, Dan, Marlo. And uh, I didn't hear anything at first. And all of a sudden I heard, you know, uh, Marlo's voice. I heard a, a, a woman's voice yell, come on in. (laughs) <laughs> and so I yelled again and I said, Dan, Marlo. And I said, come on in, come up. 
that meant to the manager's office, which is on the second floor where their makeup room is for their and their changing room for their performers. Uh huh. So I started walking in and I went up the steps and I walked past the bar area. I was heading toward the, the other second flight of steps. And Dan comes up from the basement. He goes, hey, he's like, Harrison, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going up to see Marlo. He goes, what the hell are you talking about? He goes, Marlo isn't here. I said, Dan, she just called me and told me to come upstairs. I, I heard it twice. He goes, she ain't here. And I, I thought he was screwing with her. Right. Screwing with me. And I, I said, uh, he goes, no. He goes, I'm telling you, she's not here. And she wasn't. Wow, that's and I, chilling. And Dan said, he goes, well, the hotel spoke to you. That's what he said. He goes, she does that sometimes. But I'm telling you, I know what I heard. It was clear as as day. You know, it right. said, come on in, come up. Hey, the hotel and it, wanted and to it come And it did in. it twice. Right. Well, what the hell would have happened if I would have gone up there? What would oh, I have seen? God. I don't even want to imagine. <laughs> right. What would I have seen up there? It's a good thing you were stopped. Let's just put it that right. way. And, I, and look, I wasn't hallucinating i wasn't looking for something i wasn't wishing for something it wasn't psychosomatic i thought thought they were in there that was it i was going there to do a pre-production meeting that was it hmm that's crazy that's one hell of a story though i mean normally you hear kind of the the standard fare that that you had kind of equated with ghost hunters and that kind of thing when you talk to anybody who who done film shoots and talks about anything paranormal that they've experienced but that that right there is that's an incident man (laughs) yeah it's it's not the shh did you hear something what was that right and there's nothing right you know it's like that's pretty much every episode of ghost hunters (laughs) right yeah no you're right about that just put it in like night mode on the camera and and right put it in night mode and say i felt something or i heard something yeah exactly so uh all of your projects have have remained for the most part aside from your recent comedy kind of rooted in horror so what what draws you to the genre in general well, I mean, the fields kind of, kind of explains that. I, I grew up with horror uh, with my grandparents. My grandmother absolutely loved the old black and white universal monsters and and all of that stuff. So as a boy, I mean, I grew up on a steady diet of Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff and Vincent Price, all of them. Oh, yeah, so the by the time I was – yeah, when I by the time I was eight, nine years old, man, I knew them all. I knew who Peter Lorre was. I mean, I knew all of that stuff. Yeah. And um, I just got into it. And, you know, it was – it was fun because I, I was a positive thing with my grandmother. You know, she used to love to sit up late and watch these late night horror movies or on a Saturday afternoon, if it was raining, we used to watch creature double feature with like Dr. Shock from Philadelphia, right. you know, stuff like that. And, um, it, it held a fond memory for me. So as I grew older, I mean, I, I love scary movies. I enjoyed watching them and I got a lot of fun out of them. And, and, and sometimes I don't like, you know, there are some that, Look, I have no desire to ever like a Serbian film. Look, dude, I saw that. I, I could care less about ever seeing that. To me, that's not even horror. That's just like shock. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's definitely exploitive. Right. You know, so I mean, there are different things. I, I don't like to sit and watch, you know, women being tortured for 90 minutes and, you know, all of that stuff. To me, look, give me monsters, give me, you know, giant radioactive lizards stepping on cities or you know, ghosts or, you know, giant sharks, something like that, or monsters, you know, mm-hmm. um, I'm not into all the, the torture porn stuff. I mean, I'm not saying it's bad. It's just, it's not my thing. Just like somebody who's into that is not into who knows, you know, supernatural movies. I don't know. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's kind of like they, they, there's some I enjoy. Others kind of walk that fine line of, of being borderline too real, and that kind of takes me out of it, and that's a little bit Well, that's a... how I felt about Seven. I mean, for me, and I, I know a lot of people, Seven to me is a horror film. Right. It is, it is not a thriller. It is not a cop movie. It's not any. It's a horror film. And 
quite frankly, it's too good for its own good. I saw it once. I never want to see it again. And that's not because it's bad. Hmm. It's simply that it's too good um, that I don't want ever want to watch it again. Okay. It, it made me it made me feel filthy by the time it was over. Like I needed a shower after it was over. Okay. And um, it's too nihilistic. It's too. I mean, because the problem is we do have this shit in the real world. You know, we do have people like Kevin Spacey's character. Right. I, I don't need to sit and watch that for two hours. Yeah. No. I mean, I agree. There's definitely a line that that I guess you kind of have to to walk in order to be to make a successful horror film, right? You've got to you've got to tap into that level of discomfort to make sure the audience feels squeamish, but at the same time not, not make it be too realistic, I guess. Yeah. 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 That's a good way to put it. But, you know, look, I know it's all film and I know it's escapist. I'm just saying that's just not my thing. It's great if it's somebody else's. Um, and again, I'm not bad mouthing seven. I, I think it's a brilliant motion picture. It has nothing to do with that. It's, it's kind of like I classify also one flew over the cuckoo's nest as a horror film. And that's a lot of people are always right. like, it is. It's a social horror film. I mean, Nurse Ratched is worse than Jason Voorhees. I mean, because Nurse Ratched really believes she's doing the right thing. There are real Nurse Ratcheds in the world. Yeah, that's true. You know, what happens to Billy Bibbit is horrible. You know, that it's 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 horrifying what yeah. happens to that boy. And to her, it's like, well, you know, I, I told him he didn't listen. So yeah. Yeah, I called I mean, his parents. When you put it that way, it's kind of hard to dispute. I, I, it's interesting because you know, I guess I've never really looked at that film quite in that light before. But yeah, you're right. It's it's kind of like the Green Mile in the sense that like there's just moments that are utter, utterly horrifying where that has happened to somebody. Yeah. And it's, it well, and look what they do what to Jack is. Nicholson at the end. Right? right. I mean, that's horrifying. You know, I know everybody says no, it's uplifting. He was freed, chief freedom. Yeah, I guess. I'd still rather not have twenty thousand volts sap through my skull, but okay, <laughs> sure. I I guess if you want to call it a happy ending, then I I guess we could say that old Yeller had a happy ending because they put the dog out of his misery. Yeah, well, yeah, I guess that's that's true too. I mean, it's it's all kind of dependent on how you look at it, right? Right. It's all your perspective. My perspective is it's no different than Network. I think Network is a social horror film. Okay. You know, I know it's a drama. I know one best dramatic. You know, I, I get all of that. What I'm saying is, is what you when you look at what Network called down the future, it's a very dystopian kind of film. And and the thing is, is Network was exactly right. What was coming? It, it didn't predict the internet, but it did predict the rise of of just entertainment becoming news, and and how stupid we will all become. And holy shit, did they call it? That's terrifying. That's scary. That is true. That is true. I mean, that scene where they're all kind of, or he's calling for everybody to to stand up and say, you know, I won't take this anymore, type of thing. It's, yeah, it is. And it people is. are just led. It's true. I mean, it's it's. You're right. <laughs> I can't dispute. I mean, how is that any saying. different? How is that any different than twenty thousand Nazis all holding their arms out, screaming "See Kyle!" Right? I mean, it's no different. Right. Right. And that's horrifying. That was probably the most horrifying chapter of human history. Yeah. And uh, how is that any different? Right. A bunch of dumb people, blind people, just, you know, proclaiming allegiance to whatever creed that that there is. Absolutely. No, I agree. I agree. I definitely I mean, <laughs> we could go on a tirade about this alone. Right. And fill up an hour. <laughs> right. Right. And still fill up an hour. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but let me let me ask you this. What are kind of your, your biggest sources of inspiration? I know we talked on the classics, but are, are those where you tap into everything or, or do you have other sources? Well, I mean, you know, I always growing up, I always looked at what people do, you know, like 
uh, John Carpenter, for example, like I used to read Fangoria all the time and I used to read Starlog and I didn't just read it because of the latest gossip on a horror film. I, I read it because I used to try because back then we didn't have the Internet. So you gleaned any piece of information that you could that's going to help you. And the one thing that I used to read about with George Romero and John Carpenter, uh, Larry Cohen and, and guys like that <clears throat> was that, you know, they, they I learned how they they made a movie. I learned how they worked with very much the same people all the time in front and behind the camera because, you know, you, you grab onto good people and you hang on to them for life. And, and I learned that I learned watching and reading and devouring everything I could. And that's how I run my sets. I find great people and I bring them back, you know, and if I can't bring them back in one, there'll be another film down the road where I'll bring them back. And that's what I like doing. Um, so that, that was a big influence on me. You know, Fangoria, I will say was a huge influence because it was really one of the major sources of information at that time when, at, in a time when, uh, Hollywood didn't understand that it could cannibalize itself and really just get out there and, and make a product of itself. You know, look at what Disney has done now and, and all of, all of those kind of things where we have access to so much information and so much product um, and content mm -hmm. that we just take it for granted. Back then you took what you could get. I mean, I used to read Fangoria so much. I remember my mother asking me one time, she's like, look, I, I know this is going to sound weird, but would you like a porn magazine sometime? Like, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> and I was a kid, I was like in seventh, eighth grade. I'm like, mom, I'm, I'm good. I love girls. You know, I'm okay. I have a girlfriend. Yep. I, I like boobs. I like all that stuff, but right. I really like reading this stuff. I really do. I love it. So um, you know, that's, that's where I would say is the best source of information, uh, inspiration. Okay. All right. How do you feel about kind of the, the resurgence of Fangoria and them going into production and all that kind of stuff? Well, I think it's great. I mean, you know, look, you, you know, Fangoria brings back, you know, you have the memorabilia thing, you have the nostalgia thing, but I really hope that they're able to get out there and, and compete with, with, you know, content generation and, and make a go of it. I really do. Uh, you know, look, they were they were at the time the pedigree for horror, you know, for horror information and content. So, um, I mean, there's nothing to not like about that. I, I hope they make a go of it. I hope it goes well. I'd love to work for them sometime. If they ever have a gig, throw it at me. I'd, I'd be honored to be able to. I mean, I've been in their magazine now, so I went full circle from reading it to be in, being in it. Right. But I'd love to work for them sometime. So I, I really hope it goes for them. I really do. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Uh, that kind of gives us a natural segue into my next question. Uh, you kind of mentioned about how Hollywood has kind of turned itself into a product. How do you feel about Hollywood's insistence on kind of like cons constantly rebooting films, remaking films, uh, or turning successful one-offs into a franchise? Well, look, you know, it's easy to point the finger at Hollywood, but nobody wants to look at themselves. The reason why they do this is because we go and watch this shit. Mm -hmm. That's why. And look, there's nothing wrong with, you know, I, I've written this before. I have a, a blog called Cinema, C-Y-N-E-M-A, and it's about the effects of cynicism yeah. on filmmaking. I've, I've read it. And, um, and I've, I've, read, I've written things about that where, look, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, for example, in 1978 is an example of a great remake. OK, uh, you know, they were able to do things that the original did not do. Uh, the, the remake of um, – True Grit was fantastic, I thought. It, it would follow the book. I mean, and, and without – technically, although it, I don't really classify it as a remake, John Carpenter's The Thing 
is, you know, another shining example of when remakes can go right. But I don't classify the thing as a remake. I think it's an original adaptation of the source material. I think it actually, is too. I think the, the thing is kind of like yeah, its own unique thing. It's on its right. I agree. But, you know, to, there's a difference between remaking something for the sake of remaking it. Like, for example, uh, Let the Right One In. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the uh, other one, Let Me In. Yep. And there was no need for that. Because why? Because we we can't sit and read subtitles? Is yeah, that why? That baffles me. We it, can't appreciate – that's stupid. That That's just pandering. Oh, we can't watch it because it's not an American movie. So – and people go, I don't want to read subtitles. You understand that plays right into the image of the dumb American, right? <laughs> like why can't we appreciate some other – I mean have you ever seen um, – what is it? Uh, oh my god, any other time I know it. It's just because I'm beat from today. Uh Oh my God! the The Scandinavian film uh, exports. What is what is the first part of it? Import export export. No 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 no. It's a strange foreign foreign export. I, I can't remember. I it's a horror film, a Christmas horror film, and it is spectacular. Okay, um, I loved it. But you know, people won't watch it because you know Americans won't watch it because it's subtitled. It's like I, I just don't understand this. Rare exports. You know that's. Rare exports. There it is. I'm sorry. I'm just beat. Um, but I loved it. I saw. I got to see it on Netflix at one point. They had it on. I'm like, my God, is this good? You know. So uh, to remake something, or like you said, to endlessly franchise it. Well, sometimes there's a self correction in that. I mean, I think uh, Disney got their eye blackened a little bit with the Star Wars stuff between Solo and everything else. I think they real and you know the reception of the Last Jedi. I think they realize we, we might be uh, cranking out too much of this stuff too fast. Right. Right. And I, mean, I think I think it's one of those, but, you know, like you said, if as long as people are, are kind of paying to go see it, it'll it'll keep going. Right. <laughs> well, that's it. If as long as people are going to pay to see it. Right. Then they're going to I mean, look, we we did a whole new you know sequel to Halloween, mm-hmm. which is really a sequel. It's not really a reboot. It's not really even really a remake. People can qualify whatever you want to call it. Um However, people turned out for it. That's true. So, and I'm, and I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying some of them are great, but some of them are just really, you know, cynical cash grabs is all they are. Like, you know, uh, I, I heard about that they're going to remake Cujo. Uh, something about that Cujo is a military dog, that Cujo stands for a military an acronym. Dude, why even do that? That's so stupid. It doesn't have anything to do with the original, you know, source novel. Well, just make something else and call it something else. Right. Yeah. It's, it, at that point, you're just using the name just, just right. based on nostalgia. Right. That's all you're doing, and and that's just basically giving a middle finger to your audience. Now, people turn out and watch it. Well, that's their problem. Yeah, you know, you can stop this by just saying no. Everybody goes, oh, you know, there's no originality left in Hollywood. Well, then force them to be original. They're they're just taking the easy route right now. That's true. That's so you, true. Really, you can't really fault Hollywood. It's like, well, if you people are going to eat this, we're going to make it. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. That's true. Uh, then get up and leave the table. <laughs> I mean, speaking of of kind of like recent things with Hollywood, what recent films have kind of grabbed your attention? Uh, well, that's hard to say. I mean, I I, I will say this: um, I have not been moved cinematically in a long time, except recently I got to sit and watch the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Okay, I haven't and seen that one yet. Do yourself a favor and. Sit down, and it's not just a movie to watch. It's a movie to absorb. 
Okay. And to take it. I mean, it is watch it on as big a screen as you can, especially a really nice high def TV, because the cinematography is going to blow you away. I mean, just the cinematography alone. I mean, it makes you realize there's still a beautiful world out there. Right. It really does. And um, that was just I just love it. It it deserves it. Okay. It deserves it. It was brilliant. It's great to see that the Coen brothers are are still making great stuff and not just caving. That's true. Um, I mean, I I just I loved it. It's been in Hollywood for as long as they have. I mean, the fact that absolutely consistent material is mind blowing to me. Right. They are completely consistent in their material. And it's just great stuff. And and that I will say right there and then. That that's what I'm gonna say right now. That okay. that's the probably the best thing I have seen in a long time. All right. You know, that's a, that's and I mean, a strong recommendation. Going, yes, it's it's I couldn't recommend it any higher. I just thought it was brilliant. Okay. Uh and I feel like I always kind of have to ask this question to any fan of horror, but what five films would you recommend as as essential viewing for people trying to get into the horror genre? Wow. Um, well, it depends on, on what route you want to go, because if, if you're talking about introducing children, mm-hmm. I, I always think that one of the best ones, of course, is Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Hey, that's and the a reason classic. why is it, it gently dips their toes into the water and then you can spin off from there and show them the other movies before the monsters became a joke. Mm-hmm. And that kind of gets it. But then leading into that, then I will say for number for one of the five, uh, the Bride of Frankenstein, without doubt. Okay. Um, I think I think the Bride of Frankenstein is is far more great now than when it was made, and uh, the film Beyond holds up. It is brilliant. It is beautiful. It's moving. Um, it just touched on so much. It was so far ahead of its time, and you know James Whale really deserves far more credit than he got. Okay. Um, to go deeper into the genre to to get people acclimated, uh, you know. I'd love to say the thing, but the problem is the thing for some people, it could turn them off because, you know, I mean, those effects by Rob Bottin are just, they're just as great today beyond CGI. I mean, you know, there's no CGI in that film and my God, those effects are still as stellar today as they were 30 years ago. I a hundred percent agree with that. um, I'd have to say to go from the Bride of Frankenstein to the abominable Dr. Fibes. Okay. Uh, with Vincent Price, I, I think that's Price's best movie. I know there's Theater of Blood, and people will always argue about that. But my God, the stylistic mayhem of of Abominable Doctor Fives is just brilliant. Mm-hmm. So I would go with that. Then I would go with Jaws, although I don't really know if I classify Jaws as a horror film. I classify it more as an adventure film with some horrific elements. Mm-hmm. But Jaws is another one to seep you into the the big monster kind of thing, the monster from the deep. Um, and I'm going to recommend Fright Night as well, too. 1985's Fright Night. You can't go wrong and the with that one. That's a fun one, man. You, yeah, it is. It's a lot of fun. And most of all, I watched that in 1985 as a boy. I was a senior in high school, uh, graduated, just graduated when it came out in the summer of 85. And um, I was moved by it also because it really was Tom Holland's kind of like eulogy to an era that was dying. He knew it was dying at that time. And, you know, when Peter Vincent says that, you know, nobody wants to see vampires or vampire killers anymore, he was so right. And it wasn't just that the genre tastes were switching. uh, It was also that the medium was switching. Cable, those old late night cable hosts were disappearing and, you know, VHS and Betamax had taken over and cable had taken over. And 
it was all just going away and it was going away very quickly. Mm-hmm. So it was, I think Fright Night is also a very loving Valentine to the horror genre as well. And, and another way for people to get into, because why you asked me this, I'm answering with these certain films that people have a reference to, right? That they can go in and they can say, why well, I, I should go back and look at some of these vampire movies now, you know, like, and that gets them going. Then they can check out Christopher Lee. They can check out, Bella's, you know, original film. They they can do all of that. Right, right. So, um, and then I would recommend probably Creep Show, as well too, because again of of the importance of the genre to the medium of of comics with the EC comics, but also as well it incorporates a lot of Stephen King. Then you can spin that off into King, and uh, you know, and and also with King leads to Edgar Allan Poe and and H. P. Lovecraft. You, you see what I'm saying? Like I. I try to branch it so when you watch something, you want to know more about what you're watching. Right. And I think that's also what's missing these days is you know people go to see horror just for horror's sake. They don't understand that there's so much more behind it. What inspired it? What came before it? What what gave you know this success? What came before it that, that you could look back and go, my God, well, that's connected to it too. You mm-hmm. know, I understand why they made it this way. Um that that's what I'm saying. And then I would have to go also, I think, finally with The Exorcist, which you know many consider to be the godfather of horror movies, um, just because of the fact of what Freakin did. Although I still say Freakin's masterpiece is Sorcerer. Um, you know, I would go full disclosure. I still have never seen that. <laughs> Sorcerer. Yep. Well, uh, do yourself a favor, man, and watch a really nice pristine Blu-ray cut of it. Okay. You're gonna love it. You will love it. You're I not think the only it's his masterpiece. Told me to see that. You're not the only person that's yeah. also said that it's his masterpiece. So I, I feel like now I've, I've just absolutely got to track down a copy and do it. Yeah, do your do yourself a treat. All right, all right. Yeah, I have to also say, you know, this, this is this is one of the best lists. I mean, especially with Creepshow kind of being a, the 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 penultimate choice there. I think you know, with with the fact that it's directed by Romero. Uh, yeah, you know, it's got Tom Savini's effects. You've got the, the triple whammy right Absolutely. there with that choice. I mean, I think, yeah. I think that's, and a that's what I'm trying choice. to do. I'm not like, you know, some of your listeners say, well, you know, that's not the best horror movie. I'm not saying they're the best. What I'm saying is they lead to other things. If you're, if you wanted, if you asked me like you just did to hand a list to somebody to say, well, here's what I want you to see that represents horror. That's what I would give because then you can do some research on that and go, well, I should really watch this. Oh, George Romero. Yeah, wow. He, he's really the founder of the modern zombie movement. I should probably look into some of his stuff. And like you said, Tom Savini, who in my opinion – and I've met Tom and I've been to his home and I don't say it just because of this. Mm-hmm. But Tom deserves a special Oscar. He deserves a life achievement Oscar for what he has contributed to the entertainment world and specifically the horror genre. He really does. You know, I would agree with that. But with the way the Academy kind of snubs horror in general as a genre, you know, I don't know that anything like that will ever happen for him. I, I agree with you. Unless it's like Get Out where the Academy can go, oh, it has so many social implications. Look, yeah. look how enlightened we are. Um, something like that, you're right. No, they're not going to do it. They're not going to give Tom Savini an Oscar because he did such great effects for Dawn of the Dead or, you know... Uh, uh, Even though that was know, a Friday movie with tons of social implications. I mean. Of course it was. <laughs> Dawn of the Dead is more relevant now than when it was made. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree with you there. We uh, have become a bunch of zombies. Now we have screens stuck in front of our faces. <laughs> yeah, that's another thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. we could talk about forever on on end uh 
But let me ask you this. You know, this is a tough question for some people to answer. But as as somebody who's who's done the trifecta of being in in kind of the filmmaking world from production to directing, you know, what what do you consider to be your strengths and where do you think you can improve? I think my strengths are in my writing. That's okay. that's where I think uh, my I think where I can improve is um, being told, I you know, or being told by other people to take a look at becoming more formulaic. The problem that I do is that sometimes I make movies that I want people to see more in them than what they do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a problem for me. Um, I should just make more formula. And, and you know what? The special is actually a lot more formula. <laughs> so we'll, we'll see what happens there. It's not dumb, but it's definitely more formulaic. Okay. I mean, I hope it's not too much because I definitely tapped into some of the themes that you're trying to touch on with Death House and what we're well, going to talk about I here in a little bit. But Good. And I, I'm glad to hear that because the problem where if, if any – I found that most people who didn't like Death House – were the ones that were expecting a Freddy versus Jason mashup. Yeah. And it wasn't that. It was never going to be that. And I think people still expected that. And I will not make that. Okay. So instead, you got a story that deals with, you know, the duality of good and evil, the dependence on each other for that. Mm-hmm. Um, the MK Ultra experiments, social Darwinism, you know, the whole thing, transhumanism. And it goes in. It's like, oh, well, sorry to give you a smart movie. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> um. So I guess how do how do you kind of differ from one method to another? How do you approach writing versus how you approach directing? And have you ever kind well, of had an issue getting what you envision in your head onto the screen? Well, sure. I think every director would say that. Um, it, it comes down to a matter of budget. You know, I, I wish I could have made Death House with far more sweeping, you know, sets and and all of that stuff, but. You know, the vision that you have, you have to keep it much more contained because, you know, you have a budget that's containing it. Right. So, um, yes, I can say, sure, there there were times uh, it's very hard to translate sometimes what's in your head and what you've written on paper over to the screen. And I will always, you know, utilize that it's it's a budgetary issue. If, if I had, you know, and also a time issue, if, if I had, you know, three months to shoot a movie with a hundred and forty million dollar budget, I, I think I could definitely achieve far more vision on the screen. Um, <laughs> you know, so it's, look, Spielberg could have shot Close Encounters on 5 million bucks. That doesn't mean it would have been the same movie, but he could have shot it for 5 million bucks. Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. Right? I, he could have uh, shot Jurassic Park for half of what he shot it for. It wouldn't have been the same movie. Yeah, the man, Jurassic Park would have been a tough one to shoot with five million. <laughs> exactly. Remember, just remember, they were going to use stop motion dinosaurs for that. Yeah, that was going to be the, the same stop motion that ILM used, like, even in the Star Wars films. That's right. what it was going to be. And it was Spielberg who, once again, like Jaws, basically had the technology invented for the movie. Yeah. No, I mean the fact that you'd think you would have learned after all his issues with the Jaws shark, but hey, he came right, right back to right. it, right? <laughs> right. Uh, so let's talk about Death House, and and I'm going to start sure. with with the most obvious question. Tell me what it was like working with and directing all of that talent. Well, it's real simple to sum that up. It was a privilege, and the reason why I say that is, you know, you you know, when you go out and you you do the marketing for this thing. Uh, you know, people say, well, you always have to just say nice things because even if there weren't nice things to say, mm-hmm. I got to tell you, man, I don't have a negative thing to say about any of the people that I worked with on that film. What a generous, kind bunch of people to work with. 
Um, that was what it was. I got to stand there with Sid Haig for several days and work with him and most of all, listen to him during lunch. I would sit with Sid and I used to tell him, Sid, just tell me everything. And he's like, what do you mean? I said, you've been in this business almost 50 years, dude. Tell me how it's changed. What have you seen? And Sid has given me so much advice and insight. It has helped my career considerably. So I mean, and you've got Tony Todd and I used to sit and I used to sit and just listen to them. And then I, it was a pleasure to work on set with Michael Berryman and Kane Hodder and uh, Bill Mosley and watch them goof on each other. Mm -hmm. Like they were like a bunch of high school kids goofing on each other. And it, that's what I'm saying that that's what I got out of it. That that's how I would sum it up. It was a privilege to be in the realm of these people for the limited amount of time that I was. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's Sid Haig, especially, I mean, honestly, I would, I would love to be able to sit down and just, just talk about that man's extensive career. Oh, just the people that he's, he's been seen it all. privileged to act with. I mean, you know, everybody from Pam Greer to friggin' I, I mean, the fact that Tarantino wrote, wrote an entire special scene for him. <laughs> I mean, the yeah. man's a lot more than just, just what he's been in the zombie films lately, but I feel like people see Sid Haig and just immediately think Captain Spaulding. Right. And that's he's far more than that. And yeah. that's and I knew that I didn't want to hear about Captain Spaulding. I didn't want to hear any about that. I wanted to hear about what it was like to work with Roger Corman on Galaxy of Terror. I wanted to hear about all of that and distribution, how he's seen films change from being released where a small film that like Halloween could get a theatrical and actually go on to become a major major blockbuster where, you know, now if Halloween were released today, it would not get a theatrical. You don't think so? Nope, like, I like do if, not. So you like if if Carpenter if came out with film, the original film today, you don't think it would have gotten a theatrical? That's interesting. I do not think that at all. Correct. I don't think it would get a theatrical. And if it did, it wouldn't get any. It wouldn't have made the money that it did. It would have been lumped in with everything else. There's so much content now and so much similar content. Mm -hmm. I don't think it would have made much of a blip on the radar at all. Hmm. And especially with it being so tame in the way of blood and everything else. Yeah, I, I guess I that's true. It is a fairly bloodless film. It is. It is a fairly bloodless film. Yeah, I, it's just so interesting. It's 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 baffling to me to think about that possibly being like one of those like, all right, this is just going to be on Netflix type of thing. Like, I just can't imagine that happening to that movie. But yeah, I, I, I guess you're right. It probably wouldn't have the same impact. Yeah, I mean, that's my opinion. I'm, you know, I'm I'm still not. I mean, that's what I'll stand by. All right, fair enough. Uh, so, Death House kind of started off as an idea nested in in Gunnar Hansen's head, correct? That is correct. This was all Gunnar's idea from the very beginning. Correct. Um, did you pick up your side of writing after his death, or did you work on it actively with him? No, I worked on it with him before he died. Okay. And what was that like? What was that experience like? Tell me about that. Well, I mean, you know, he had the original script. Um, it didn't get much traction and he knew why he was very open about his own writing. He felt that the writing was flat and he really didn't like the original plot. The original plot was a group of filmmakers, college filmmakers go into the depths of this abandoned asylum where the crazies are living down in the depths of the asylum and they kill everyone. Mm -hmm. And that was it. And I said to him, I said, well, Gunnar, I said, we, we kind of see this film all the time. He's like, I know he wanted more about, you know, good and evil dependency on good and evil and we started talking about that, and he wanted uh, this concept of the four horsemen mm -hmm. uh, to stay in the in the story. And I said, well, it's pretty heavy biblically there. 
So I said, how about we change them to the four evils? And I said, why don't we fill out one more point on the pentagram and make them the five evils? And I made one of them female. Okay. So we have the, we have the five evils. And then um, I got the idea to turn it over into a, a prison instead of a, an abandoned asylum. How about, you know, I said, how about we make Jurassic Park without the dinosaurs? Okay. You know, so if you, if you look at Death House, you have the, the young group. They come in for the tour. They go on the tour. The ride breaks down. The monsters get out. That's basically Death House. Yeah. I, I mean, when you sum it up succinctly like that, yeah, it is pretty much the plot of Jurassic Park. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's Jurassic Park without the dinosaurs. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, the majority of the filming took place in Holmesburg Prison, correct? Correct. The majority of all the prison stuff was in Holmesburg Prison in Philadelphia. Uh, then we did um, all of our, our supplementary shots and the, the ending with the five evils that was all shot in Los Angeles. Okay. So did did the history of Holmesburg have any influence on kind of how things played out with with the film itself uh, in terms of <clears> Yeah, well, it like did. That? It was kind of a happy accident. It did as we went along because, I mean, I knew the history of the place and its own human experimentation, which has its own horror story. In fact, they wrote um, a book about it called Acres of Skin. Okay. That's a hell of a title. And yeah, um, a hell of a title. <laughs> it is a hell of a title. And uh, so, you know, as we were shooting, you know, it wasn't lost on cast and crew. It's like, wow, it's kind of fitting that this movie is shot here, you know. So, right. um, yeah, I mean, its history definitely did play into it, of course. Yeah. OK. Uh, tell me kind of like what it was like transitioning from being on set in the prison versus going back to kind of L.A. and having to kind of <laughs> it was very the rest of it. Yeah. Yeah. It was very different. Um, the, the atmosphere left, you know, because you're, you're doing a lot of green screen work and studio work and, uh, you know, it's, it's all very LA. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're shooting in there, I mean, you, you have to stop and remember that, you know, you're, you're standing in places where people died, where people murdered each other, um, where riots had taken place and, and, you know, also terrible <clears throat> experimentation in human conditions. I mean, that's that's what you're constantly reminded of when you're when you're working at that prison. So there was a big difference there. Yes. Yeah, I can I can imagine it's kind of hard to get away from from the overarching kind of sense of dread. I mean, you just look at pictures of that prison, and it's just you, you, man, like when when you look at oh, aerial, yeah. aerial shots of it, it's just mind blowing to me that that was ever kind of like it seems like the place of legend, you know? <laughs> oh yeah. Um, but. D Death House kind of explores some some pretty poignant themes. You got stuff dealing with technology, uh, as you mentioned, religion, uh, and kind of like the idea of like judging right and wrong and what is really good and evil. Um, would you have liked to kind of had an opportunity to explore some of these ideas a little more intricately? Of course, if of you, course, I would. If you had that hundred and thirty million dollar budget and that three months, which what? How would you have tapped into it a little deeper? Well, I would have been able to show more in the way of, of the experiments and the experimentation mm -hmm. um, and, and to go through with, you know, possibly even some more uh, digital effects to take us in to show us, you know, case histories and files to supplement that. All you really need is to show history to support your point. Right. And, and that's what I really needed. Look, we humans do enough to each other to underscore the evil that men do. So, yeah. you know, we, we are actually a really rotten species. We really are. We are terrible to each other. We're terrible to the animals around us. We're terrible to our environment. And somehow we still prevail for the moment we prevail. Um, 
And and that's what I would have wanted to get more across that in the end, we're, we're all just doomed anyway. You know, that's that's really what it is, unless we have some kind of enlightenment of ourselves and pull ourselves out of the, you know, the superficial lifestyle that we live in right now, we're, we're never going to we're never going to keep going, mm-hmm. you know, and we probably don't deserve to. And that's really what the five evils kind of say. We we probably all just don't deserve to be here anymore. Right. Right. And yeah, I think that's an ex- an, an interesting point that they kind of try to explore the whole idea of kind of having to chase after evil that it has to exist. Uh, yeah. It's 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 a point that like, you know, I I definitely see what you were kind of going for there towards the end of the film and I think uh a lot of people like I said who who or like you said kind of who have seen this that I've seen bashing on it kind of dismissed the movie for what just kind of being something like simplistic but i think you are treading on a lot of of very interesting themes um but one thing that kind of like caught me personally off guard and i'm still having trouble kind of piecing together can you please kind of explain tony todd's character in depth for me because his story i find his opening and his ending scenes to be absolutely fascinating i think they're some of the, the strongest points of the film absolutely um, and that's it's great because number one, Tony Todd will feature highly in the sequel in Death House Two. Oh, I can't! Um, that makes me so happy to. <laughs> and were you able were you able to watch the film with my director commentary? No, I bought it on VOD, so I only have the one. Uh, okay, the one. if you, you get the DVD, my director commentary answers that question very very clearly. Okay. Um, however, Tony Todd, uh, his he's, his name is Asa. He's a farmer, and that's what he says in the opening when he has that girl paralyzed in the desert. Mm-hmm. And what he's doing to her is he, he's talking about that. He used to raise plants and he used to raise Venus fly traps. Mm-hmm. And one of the things about a Venus fly trap is when you raise them, if they start to bloom a flower, you have to cut the flower because it, it, the flower uh, takes away their energy. It takes away their, their power and the plant weakens. Right. So you have to snip the flower for reproduction. Well, what he's performing on her in the desert is an abortion. He's removing fetal tissue out of her. Is what he's doing. That's why he says you have to snip the flower. And as he says that, he's pulling out what he's removed from her abdomen, which is a is fetal tissue. Okay. He doesn't want his plants that he's going to take to the farm being raised up to uh, be weak. He needs strong plants. Okay. And what's going on at the end when he has Gabrielle Stone in the truck, we find out in the sequel that he's part of a, a human organ trafficking program is what it is. The farm is where they harvest organs and human beings. Okay. All right. This is this is a very interesting angle. So what's what exactly is the black substance that he's working with? Well, the black substance, D. Wallace explains that later in the film when they run in the room where all the corpses are hanging from the ceiling. Mm-hmm. They, they, they had their fail-safe in the jail – is a gas that will turn on that actually shuts off your body's immune system right and you get eaten by your own bacteria so you turn into this black mess okay i missed that connection there all right that, yeah that makes sense that makes sense all right man that just like that kind of blows me away and 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 makes me very excited for for the the sequel <laughs> yeah um so agent boone uh played by by courtney palm who i is awesome in this movie by the way yeah she is um, she's stellar yeah so I, I've got to ask, you know, I've watched this film pro- probably five or six times now, and I really, you know, I really do like it. But wow, the, thank you. <laughs> the, the death at the beginning, where she kills the mom and son. Do you think that could have yes. been avoided? Like the more that I watch it, the more I'm just like, you know, 
she's just going to turn around and reveal and break her cover to Sieg anyways. Exactly. Uh, then what was the point of her kind of killing the mom and son? Exactly. That's the whole point. Was there something more in her to do this? That's the whole point. She didn't have to do it. She could have just shot him. She could have disabled him from the start and said, I'm taking you in. I mean, there's already stuff going on above. Her agents have obviously swarmed the the campus anyway or wherever they're at. They're down in this bunker kind of thing, which has a strong allusion to the Nazis, of course, because Sieg says, you know, that I've studied. He's he's gone into Nazi occultism. We never explain how he's figured out immortality. We never explain any of those things. Mm -hmm. Not yet. However, with Courtney... As we saw later in the film, there was obviously some kind of of conditioning going on with her and Agent uh, Novak. Excuse me. So there must be something inside of her that either enjoyed doing it or that just felt, well, this is what you have to do. It's just, you know, why did the Nazis do what they did? Any of those Nazis could have freed those people in the camp. Okay, They they could have just done it. I, get, I see what you're getting at. Okay, at so any kind time, of... those Nazis could have said, we're not listening to this anymore. We're not going to put people in ovens. We're not going to put people in gas chambers. They could have shot their superiors and opened those gates and let those people free. Okay. All right. That makes a lot of sense now. Okay. Um, <coughs> let's talk about the three Satans, uh, which I found to be kind of a, another one of <laughs> the, the best points of the movie, right? So, Thank you. So to, to sum it up, one is Satan, one is created Satan, the other is the son of Satan. Where did you get the, the inspiration for that? I mean, I know it's, it's very biblical in a sense, but, but— Yeah, but actually there's nothing biblical about it because it was a real social experiment done by a doctor back in the 1960s. Oh. Um, this doctor took the three—he called them the three Jesuses. Mm-hmm. And he took one who believed he was God, one who believed he was uh, the Holy Ghost, and one who believed he was Christ— and put them in a room hoping they would eventually cancel each other out, that they would realize, oh, shit, I'm really not who I think I am. They're really not who they think we are and possibly cure them of, of their own disease mm-hmm. is what he had thought. It never went anywhere. It, it Nothing happened. But I thought that was so interesting. I just reversed it and made it the three Satans. Ah, see, for me, from, <laughs> from that personally, I took away this kind of like you were trying to comment on like the fact that that satan is man type of thing like maybe man is inherently kind of harboring a capability for evil and as a result right. he created satan satan creates itself uh i thought you were kind of like treading on on maybe something circular there i found it to be very very fascinating and i actually had well, no idea about this experiment that you were talking about yeah but see you took away something which is really cool so it made you think yeah that's true um that, that's all that matters yeah <laughs> and I do, you know, I do like the fact that we kind of revisit them towards the end of the movie once they talk about oh, the, yeah. the the mask coming back and everything. And ultimately he ends up dying the way that he describes or that his victims were described to have died. So, that is correct. Um, the riot scene is one of the best piling kind of action on top of this, the, the tension. Uh, not to mention we get to see Kane Hodder be a proper badass ripping off R.A. Uh, Mihailov's <laughs> face. <laughs> yeah, it's a great scene, man. Um, so uh, you had you said you hadn't explained it, and I'm sure you're getting ready to kind of explain it. But can you give us kind of some sort of hint as to how C was able to tap into the power? Well, no. Okay. Uh, the, the, re- the reason why is um, I'll give you an example. When we were editing the film, uh, I had a young editor. One of the editors was about 25, so he's a pup. And uh, he's sitting there, and I, he goes, I can't believe you got to work with Kane Hodder, man. He's so badass. I loved him in Friday the 13th. He's Jason Voorhees. I'm like, yeah. He goes, but Harrison, I got a question for you. And he goes, how can Kane keep getting up? You know, they rip his guts out. They shoot him. They you know, all this stuff. How does he keep, you know, resurrecting? I said, 
So let me ask you a question. I said, Jason Voorhees got his head chopped off, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Corey Feldman chopped his head off and then somehow miraculously lightning struck him and he resurrected. They burned Jason. Uh, they've electrocuted Jason. They've blown him up. They yeah, drowned him. Tiny little bits. <laughs> right, right. And somehow he keeps coming back. He goes, yeah. I said, so when Kane wears a mask, you have no questions. But when he doesn't wear a mask, you have questions. And he goes, I never thought of it that way. I said, yeah, why did you accept any of that? Do we do we need the scientific scene in Jason it, with any Jason movie going like our midichlorian scene in Star Wars? Do we need? Well, as you can see, Jason's reproductive cells are able to regenerate at a rapid rate that is un- inhuman and possibly in, you know, some type of alien life form. Do we need an explanation of this? Yeah. We never explain. Why does Michael Myers sit up every time you shoot him? Yeah, that's true too. Because <laughs> he's Dr. supposed to be more human than anybody, or any other slasher, right? I right. mean, until Do- the Dr. Films. Loomis says it best. He's evil. That's it, dude. That's it. He's evil. That's all we know. Okay. He's evil. And that's, we know that Kane, Kane at the end says, <clears throat> I've studied the power. Okay. I followed all of you. He stumbled onto something. That's all we know. He stumbled onto something. And it worked, and it worked enough to make him believe that he was immortal. But obviously, as Bill Mosley says, really, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's what he says, right? Apparently, all it takes is full-on deconstruction, right? <laughs> right. Um, so, Death House is kind of plagued by a number of delays, all for good reasons. I mean, I, I, I support the theatrical release that you guys went for and all that kind of stuff. But one thing that I couldn't pinpoint, right, is that it was supposed to make a Netflix appearance. I haven't heard anything about it since. Well, we haven't heard yet either because it's up in the air on where it's going, uh, whether it's going to go to Netflix or Hulu or we're, we're not sure on that one yet. Okay. That's up to the distributor right now. That's Cleopatra, mm-hmm. which has an output deal with Sony in the Orchard. So um, we don't know where that's going yet. As soon as we do, we're going to announce that. Um, but it, it has a Redbox deal coming and the, you know all those windows that go with it. Mm-hmm. So we're not sure yet where that's going to be. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Um now, the next film, The Dawn of the Five Evils, that's in pre-production now, you said it, it, that's supposed to be a sequel? I was under the impression it was a prequel. It's it's really an unofficial prequel okay. is what okay. it is. And producer Rick Finkelstein of Entertainment Factory, uh, it, it's his brainchild. <clears throat> and uh, I have a treatment for that. I don't have a full script like I do for Death House 2. Okay. Uh, but it will look at the origins of the evils and most of all where this comes from. It'll it'll be a lot heavier and a little deeper um, because it goes into what D. Wallace discussed about the banality of evil. Right, right. Yeah, and I'm, I, I, I got to admit I'm fascinated by that. Can you give us any kind of insights as to what to expect and how that might tie into Death House 2? Well, or what it does film? is it goes back to what brought these what seem to be human figures, correct, mm-hmm. uh, into a supernatural realm. And that's where we go and how they become this kind of immortal demigod uh, kind of figures so okay. that that's the best i can tell you right now on that okay um for both death house 2 and for uh dawn of the five evils are you expecting a full cast list to return for these we that's the plan yes the plan is that i i can't tell you anybody who's 100 percent committed that's up to rick okay uh, i i don't have any part in that i'm not a producer on it mm-hmm. but the plan is yes to to have a full cast returning um especially the original five evils and then um also as well, you know, surrounding them with, with other names. Okay. Awesome. I'm really excited for both of these films. Honestly, <laughs> I really you. am. Uh, finally, I've got a bit of a fun question for you. Um, sure. If you could take the reins of an established horror franchise, 
what would it be, and how would you uh, make it your own? Well, here's it's it's a two. Do you count Godzilla as horror? Sure, I'll count whatever you want to answer. I would love to get my hands on a Godzilla film. Okay, that's what I would love to do. I would love to direct a Godzilla movie and enter into that franchise without doubt. Okay, um, but if I had a chance otherwise for a more established genre horror film, I would love to join forces with Tom Holland for a Fright Night three. That could be interesting. I have a script. <laughs> oh, do <you? laughs> I do. Is this like a dream project of yours? It's a dream project. Has, Tom has no affiliation with it whatsoever. Um, he does not endorse. He doesn't even know about it. So it's like, but I do have a script that I wrote, my God, years before I even met Tom Holland. And um, I'm just a huge admirer of his work, especially his writing. <clears throat> I think he's a gifted writer, and I loved what he did with Fright Night and directing it. And I love Psycho 2. I think Psycho 2's absolute strength, aside from Anthony Perkins, is its screenplay. Right. Hey, and I, I can't make any promises, but we can shoot this podcast over this over his way and say, hey, take a listen shoot to it, the end and see what happens. Shoot it over. Tom knows me. Uh, yeah, Tom <laughs> knows me. And, um, you know, I, I'm just a huge admirer of his work, and I think he's a fine man and, and a gentleman. And uh, I, I know that the rights to Fright Night are all over the place. So, And, and as I said, he has no official endorsement of any of this at all it's just it was it was a fan thing that i wrote and you know that you just asked me a question i answered hey people can dream right right i (laughs) can dream that's exactly it i can dream (laughs) um harrison let people know where they can kind of follow you and and uh your upcoming projects on social media sure thank you i can be followed on twitter at harrison smith 85 uh you can go to horrorfuel.com and look up my uh, cinema series, C-Y-N-E-M-A. Which is fantastic. Uh, you should be reading it if you're not. Oh, thank you. Um, and what about your upcoming projects? Anything established for those yet? Yeah, well, I mean, we have right now, we have the special in production right now. It's shooting. So I'm excited about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have uh, a comedy that looks like is heading over to Paramount right now. So I'm really happy about that. I can't give too many details on that yet till the paperwork is all done okay and then um, i've been working on i adapted uh the bestseller spilled milk which is not a horror film in the way it's based on a true story of, of sexual assault which is a horror in its own way um but not like with monsters and demons of course only real monsters in this and uh the script has received great reviews and coverage and uh that's going into production as well too hopefully this year Okay, awesome. Uh, we'll be sure to link all those in the description kind of so people can follow you and, and get some more insight as to what's coming up. But Harrison, I really want to thank you for your time. This has been genuinely one of the best interviews we've had. And uh, Wow, thank you. And I, I honestly, I can't wait to see what you've got down the pipeline in the future. Well, everybody, that wraps it up for another episode of The Gory Details. We hope you enjoyed the interview with Harrison Smith as much as we did. In the meantime, while you're waiting for this week's episode... Why don't you pause and think to yourself, if I had a list of modern video nasties, what would be on it? There's been a ton of stuff that's come out since the BBFC stopped keeping track of their list, and we want to come up with a modern one. So, the only stipulation is that it has to be after the year 2000. So, we're taking any submissions, we've already gotten plenty from people on social media, and uh, we're looking for some from you. So, if you've got any ideas, let us know. Don't hesitate to email us at cast at terrorandpodnito.com or shoot us a message on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all at terrorandpodnito. We're looking forward to seeing your nominations. We've got a few ideas of our own, 
and it'll all build up to an announcement for February's theme. Look for another episode this Friday, same time, same place. This week's film is Baskin, so get ready as we journey into hell. We'll see y'all later, and as always, keep it creepy. Thank you.